Thanks for tuning in to the Christchurch Inner West podcast. CCIW is made up of St John's Ashfield, St Albans Five Dock and St Oswald's Haberfield. We meet in person and online each Sunday and you're really welcome to join us anytime. For more information about times and activities, go to our website cciw.org.au. So we reached the end of our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, and it's been one of those experiences for me where at first a book that is foreign and um, irrelevant, it seems, has become so rich and its truth so relevant. So I hope you get a sense of that this morning as we make our way through these final chapters of Nehemiah. So we're looking at chapters 11 to 13, and it's on page 382 of your Bibles. Pages... Uh, It's on page 382 of your Bible. We'll sort of be skipping through the chapters, focusing in at points similar to what Richard did with his readings. So let's pray together, and then we'll start. Our great God, you promised to work through and in your word, and you did that at creation when all things came into being. We pray that your word does something similar in our lives this morning, something new, something Lasting, we pray that your word speaks powerfully into our hearts, into our minds, and into our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, your word made flesh. Amen. So about eight years ago, I was living in the Hunter Valley, and I was an exercise physiologist, and I was working for a South African boss. And so often for this job, we'd have to travel long distances, and sometimes we'd travel together. And on one occasion, I had a conversation with Joe... That was his name. And it was an eye-opening conversation. It was about gated communities. Now, I'd seen the movie Invictus, and I'd read Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. But until this conversation, I didn't realise how very alive racial tensions still are in South Africa. So my boss, he lived in South Africa in a gated community. Though they don't call them gated communities anymore. They're complexes or security villages. I've never met anyone who lived in a gated community and had assumed those type of living situations were relatively rare, but they're not. Apparently, since apartheid, those types of living situations have rapidly increased. But back to the conversation with Joe, assuming that I was going to judge him for living in the privileged gated community, he began to explain the violent crimes that occurred in the area just outside the gated community. And he told a story of how his wife and his children were assaulted in a local park that was just outside the wall of their community. So we're in the final week of the series in Nehemiah, which is a book all about walls and gates. Now, with the history of being trampled over and run over by foreign nations, it makes sense for Israel to really want walls and gates. But walls and gates aren't simply about keeping violent enemies out, walls and gates allow for the integrity, the wholeness of something. It allows something to be intact. And so, for example, do you know what would happen to you if all of the walls of your cells suddenly disappeared, dissolved? It wouldn't be pretty. Having walls and gates is a good thing. Having walls and gates around my house and doors, they're good things. But just to prod you for a moment to reflect on yourself, do you see yourself as a gates open person 
So willing to try out new ideas and experiences to let them in? Or are you more of a gates-closed person, someone who's more cautious and wary of things coming in from the outside? What's your default stance in the world? Now, my guess is that more people here would consider themselves gates-open people partly because of a personality trait that you have, but I think it's also because of a cultural moment thing. There's no more powerful criticism of someone than to call them closed-minded. Now, I'm not wanting to advocate closed-mindedness this morning, but I'm keen to have us consider what James meant in the New Testament reading. So he says, James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So for James to use the categories of pure and unstained and undefiled means that the world is in some sense, if we're not careful, a place from which defilement or impurity might come. Or the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Then he quotes from Isaiah. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Now that sounds surprisingly gates closed. Or if you think that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is peculiarly closed-minded, let me take Jesus himself. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So according to Jesus, Christians are distinguished from the world by their saltiness. And to the extent they lose their saltiness and so become like the world, they're not worthy of the name. I mean... It makes sense. Why would you use a term to describe other people, Christians, if they're no different? So to go along with the assumptions of the scriptures that the world can compromise our purity or integrity as Christians. So to go along with that assumption, we're going to be thinking a little bit about gates this morning. Why we need them, how to use them and what's inside them. So why we need gates. Halfway through chapter 12 we enter another scene of rejoicing and celebration. It's one of those passages that it's better to imagine than to read. The walls and the gates are finished. As you know, many had given up their livelihoods to take part in the building effort. They'd left their homes, their jobs, and they faced opposition. But now the walls and the gates are complete. And the Israelites, they look at what they'd they'd built by the sweat and tears And it's not just stone that they're looking at. They're looking at God's faithfulness. God had promised that exile would not be the end for them. And so, in your eyes, mind, mind's eye, sorry, mind's eye, you're not only seeing walls stretching into the distance, the walls would have been four kilometers long, 12 meters high, and uh, 2.5 meters across, you're hearing loud music. So, verse 27, singing cymbals and harps and lyres. And then you'd hear and watch. Two choirs mount the wall. So remember, it's 2.5 minutes wide, so it can hold quite a few people. And one choir proceeds north up the wall, and the other proceeds south, and they're going towards a common destination as they sing praises to God. They're going towards the freshly rebuilt house of God, where they offer great sacrifices. So you're not only seeing a wall, you're not only hearing music, you're smelling all sorts of things, sacrifices. And they're rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. 
So there's been a couple of high points in the book of Nehemiah so far, but this is the climactic point in the book. The city's finally been brought back to life. I've been watching Beauty and the Beast with Laura, and it's nearly like the end of the film. So Belle tearfully professes her love for the beast before the last petal falls, and then magic rain starts falling, and the place is transformed from dreariness to joy. In verse 43, the Hebrew root word for joy is repeated five times in quick succession. They rejoice because God had given them great joy. The women rejoice, the children rejoice, and then the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. We're getting the sense that this is a scene of overflowing joy. This is the climax of the book. And it's because the walls and the gates have been completed. The walls and the gates afford them protection. And just like cell walls, they allow them to be and live and worship as God had intended. It allows for integrity and wholeness. It allows for them to be the people of God, who, they, who God called them to be, to be a joyful, worshipping community with the word of God directing and nourishing them. And it gives us a glimpse as to why we need gates. If it's true that the world can and does compromise our purity or integrity, then gates allow us to keep certain things out and, of course, allow certain things in. So a couple of examples. Our national parks are based on this premise. The National Parks and Wildlife Service provide, in a sense, walls and gates to the bushland. Urbanisation can only go so far. They can keep us from entering the, the national parks whenever they want all with the purpose of protecting the integrity of what's inside, the biodiversity, the natural and historical and cultural heritage. It's an example of why we need walls and gates. Another is, um, think about a person who falls away from faith. It's nearly always a slow drift. The way it usually goes is the person allows in assumptions that undermine faith. And soon enough, they're viewing Christianity through the lens that the world gives. So Christianity is imperialist. It's anti-love. It's anti-justice on the wrong side of history. They're viewing Christianity through the assumptions that the world has, they've let in, rather than viewing the world through the lens of faith. That's why we need walls and gates. Which leads us to point two. So how to use gates. How do we work out when to open the gates and when to close the gates? As I said, the end of chapter 12 is the climactic point in the book. If you're directing, if you were directing a blockbuster movie based on the book of Nehemiah, you'd probably end it at chapter 12. But if you were um, trying to design a Netflix series, reaching for another season, you'd go on to chapter 13. (laughs) Chapter 13 brings us down from the heights. So from last week, you might remember chapter 10, the Israelites, in their renewed commitment to God, specified three areas that they were going to obey God um, when it came to mixed marriages, the Sabbath, and the temple. Well, in chapter 13, we return to each of those three areas, but this time with a description of how their commitment slowly crumbled. Now, I use the description crumbled advisedly. It really does turn out that the book of Nehemiah is not about the rebuilding of walls and gates so much as it is about the rebuilding and crumbling away of the people of God. So the fly of chapter 13, starting with the temple, their commitment to the temple. In the first part of the chapter, 
verses 1 to 3, God's people had been allowing Ammonites and Moanites through the gates. Even though in the book of the law, Moses' book of the law, they weren't allowed to, en- they weren't allowed to enter the temple precinct. And then in verses 4 to 10, they describe how the, the, uh, that part of Nehemiah 13 describes how the priest, Eliashib, had given a room within the temple to Tobiah. Okay? So not only had this room been dedicated to store the tithes and the offerings meant for those who worked in the temple, that's what it was for, but Elisha gave the room to Tobiah the Ammonite. If you were reading Nehemiah really carefully, carefully you'd realise that Tobiah the Ammonite was one of those enemies who'd been making the rebuilding of the wall really hard. Now Tobiah the Ammonite had a sacred room right at the heart of God's temple for his own personal belongings. This is corruption. This is under-the-table arrangements. And as a consequence of that, verses 14, uh, 11 to 14 describe how the Levites and the temple singers and the gate- gatekeepers had to return to working the land outside of Jerusalem because they had no offerings, there, were, there was no income for them to work in the temple because the room had given, been given to Tobiah. And so begins the unravelling of this beautiful tapestry that we read of in chapter 12. The gates let in what they shouldn't have, and they let out what was meant to be in. And so it continues in verse 15, now related to the Sabbath. Their promises to keep the Sabbath in chapter 10 have soon been overrun by desire for increased business. And so on the Sabbath, foreign traders were bringing their goods through the gates for trading, wine, grapes and figs and more. And so what did Nehemiah do? He ordered the gates to be shut on the Sabbath. But that only meant the traders were met outside the gates by the Israelites for trading and selling, for buying and selling. So that's the Sabbath. And now thirdly, mixed marriages. We're going through the three things they committed to in their devotion to God. It's all crumbling. Mixed marriages. Verse 23. In those days, Nehemiah speaking, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, Hebrew, but spoke the language of various peoples. So again, the gate had been left open and the cultural heritage of the people was spilling out like a cell without walls. So how do we work out when to open and close the gates? So much could be said here. But a few things. In the book of Nehemiah, in Jerusalem at this time, there was a bias towards openness. The gates of Israel would have been open most of the time, every day, except the Sabbath. In the same way, I think the general stance we ought to have is to be one of openness to the world, curious and generous and welcoming. Really important to say. Second, even whilst our stance should be one of openness to the world in general, it's worth being clear that there are times to close the gates. Sometimes it's more obvious when we need to close the gates. But mostly it's not, and so it requires discernment. So a few points to help with your discernment. What are your views on the major social issues of today? To bring up one that was relevant to Nehemiah's day, marriage. Sexuality, Sabbath, so work and rest balance or rhythms. Climate change. Have you mostly kept the gates open and so your views basically are indistinguishable from the popular inner West opinion? 
It's really interesting to note that other nationalities did reside in Jerusalem. So you read of the Tyrians in verse 16 of chapter 13. Israel had opened the gates to them and let them live within their city. But presumably they would have had to abide by Jewish law whilst they lived in the city. So they wouldn't have been allowed to trade on Sabbath. Now, I wonder if there's a parallel here. Taking in certain social issues and owning them but ensuring that your approach to the issue is thoroughly gospel-shaped, that it abides by, abides by gospel assumptions, similar to how the Tyrians would have had to abide by the Jewish law. Why am I making this point? Because it's way too easy to adopt an issue with all of its secular assumptions. So adopting Marriage equality. I'm only using it because it's in the, marriage was a thing for them too. So adopting an issue with all of its secular assumptions, love is love. And to then add a veneer of faith to it, Jesus is all about love. Which is probably what's happening with the Tyrians, superficially abiding by Jewish law but restructuring life at a deeper level. And so related to this, Just as the kids of the mixed marriages lost their fluency in Hebrew, it's easy for us to lose our gospel fluency. We're all fluent in something. We need to, in a sense, speak Christian, see all of life through the lens of the gospel. And so, for families, what fluency are your own decisions about work, school and church teaching your kids? When Friday debating and Sunday sport are more important than your, the youth group or kids' church, then what language are you teaching your kids to talk in? When academic success is more important than Christ-like character, what language are you teaching your kids to talk in? Question for everyone. What kind of fluency are you creating in your own life? Regular patterns of Bible reading, prioritising getting to fellowship group, choosing service and community over hours of overtime or additional qualifications or whatever it might be. I only ask these questions to prod. Or maybe there's a point in your life where you just need to close the gates. I know people at church who've who've closed the gates to Instagram for, for a season because it was just a place of unhealthy comparison. Or I know people, men who've closed in the gates to certain forms of internet use. In various means, because it's just a temptation to lust. The question is, uh, sorry, the question, how do you work out when to open and close the gates, often isn't an easy question to answer. On most issues, our answers will be slightly different for each of us. But knowing that there is a time to shut the gates, if only for a season, and that gospel-shaped discernment is what's required, that's a good start. There's a time to shut the gates. And knowing that gospel discernments are required when we address any of the issues that come up. That's my second point. How to use gates. Now what's inside the gates. So do you notice how focused these chapters are on purity and cleansing? The Israelites didn't only need to be careful who came through the gates, they needed to cleanse themselves. So in verse 30 of chapter 12, at the dedication of the temple... It says this, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. In chapter 12, verse 45, the Levites performed the service of purification. Their job was to cleanse the people. 
in chapter 13, verse 9, after Nehemiah ordered Tobiah out of the sacred room, he then gave orders to cleanse that room. Even with all the cleansing, even though they cleanse themselves, there's still a problem. If you boil down the message of Nehemiah, it'd be something like this. Even with the walls and gates rebuilt so that they could decide what comes in and what stays out, it didn't solve the problem. It's not the outside world that's the problem. The problem was inside the gates too. It's a problem of the human heart. No matter how much the people purified themselves, no matter how effective they might have been at keeping nations out via the gates, the problem still remained. It's a problem walls and gates can't fix. Which, of course, just means the story of Nehemiah doesn't end with chapter 13. We need an answer to this problem. If we can't get pure from the outside in, how can we be pure from the inside out? Well, we need a better Nehemiah. We didn't read it in chapter 13, but Nehemiah confronts impurity with hair-pulling and public-shaming and beatings. It's pretty eye-opening. Jesus confronts impurity by willingly being beaten and shamed. Jesus, the incarnate one, opened the gates to all impurity. I had to do this posture. He was overcome by it. The pure one became sin so that we might have his purity. So that the deepest part of us might be cleansed. We're pure from the inside out. And one thing that stands out about Jesus is that the, the, the power dynamic between impurity and purity is exchanged. So throughout the Old Testament, impurity trumped purity. If you, pure though you might be, touched an impure thing, you became impure. Impurity trumped purity. But with Jesus, that all changed. Jesus would always be traveling into dangerous, unclean territory. He touched the leper, the outcast, the unclean. And instead of impurity traveling to him, purity traveled outwards to them. And that's the same with us. Having been purified by Jesus from the inside out, we can live in an impure world and work for its purity. Though we might shut the gates at points, we don't have to be fearful of anything outside. We can live boldly for Jesus, unafraid, because the power of Jesus is inside us so that we, to speak metaphorically as I have all sermon, we can bring renewal outside the city gates. So I started this morning with a conversation I had with an old boss about gated communities in South Africa. The main idea with gated communities is keeping out danger. I want to end with a different picture that travels in the other direction, going out to bring renewal. So founded in the 11th century, the Knights Hospitaller, with its more well-known arm, the Order of St. John, was founded. And it's probably the oldest charity in the world. Early in the charity's history, the Knights came together as a monastic community. That is to say, a community with walls and gates. And they came together at first in Jerusalem, What a coincidence. There, they trained in medicine and their monastic 
community eventually became a hospital. And they existed, not only for the sick to come to them, but they'd go out to the sick and injured pilgrims to Jerusalem and the surrounding area. That is, this community, with its walls and its gates, existed for the sake of those around them. Are you seeing any parallels? This is us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving yourself for us so that we could be purified from the inside out. And we pray that your spirit continues to form us to be the type of community, knowing its walls and gates, that goes out for the sake of others, to love others, to bring light, to bring hope, to bring news of you, the living one who lived and died and rose again for all people so that life might be victorious. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit continues to well up life and love in in us and in our community. Amen.